This is the Diaspora Dialogues podcast. My name is Helen Walsh, and I'm the president of DD. DD helps emerging writers turn their craft into a career. We run a number of programs, including public development seminars and public talks and conversations across the country. In this episode, which we recorded in Winnipeg, we looked at how to blow up can lit in which we meant how to get beyond the very narrow perceptions of who qualifies for CanLit or what type of writing qualifies for CanLit. On this amazing diverse panel, we had people writing mystery, writing speculative, YA, comics, fantasy, as well as considerations from agents and publishers and booksellers. Our goal was to spark a maybe controversial, but certainly insightful look at what the freshest new voices and the freshest new writing is taking place in Canada. Hello, everybody. My name is Digon. Uh, I've been asked to chair this uh, distinguished and wonderful panel uh, to uh, talk a little bit about CanLit, uh, but I want to just t- acknowledge uh, the Diaspora Dialogues, which is taking place yesterday and today. And we have amazing events happening uh, following this event. We're having a number of podcast uh, tapings, which I will be doing the first one with Dave Robertson. Uh, We'll be talking about his new work, his career, his future memoir, and various other things. And the fact that we're all secret cousins. We'll talk about that as well. And uh, so it's a a pleasure to be here. But this panel is called uh, Blowing Up Up of Can Lit, which uh, you couldn't ask me twice to be a part of this panel. Well, for the most part, because uh, when Helen contacted me uh, earlier this week, I was traveling, I was literally on a flight from Edmonton uh, to Toronto, and uh, and I got this email saying, would I come and uh, take part in this panel? And I said, absolutely, because I think this is one of the most interesting areas and the um, trajectory of CanLit uh, is very different from when I was in school, when I was uh, doing my honors degree and then later doing my graduate work in uh, literature. Uh, because Canlit has a uh, is a different it's a different world than it was when I started when it was all about painted doors on the prairies. I remember that that was really what my experience of Canlit was, and it's very different now. So uh, today, our our authors and our writers and our thinkers are going to be talking about the different landscape within Canlit, as well as uh, how do they use their writing to uh, to put forward a complex and diverse understanding of Canlit. And then uh, we're going to hopefully talk a little bit at the end of where we're going. Where's Canlit going? Uh, as we see some of the recent uh, work on social media involving uh, issues that are in Canlit right now. But I want to introduce everybody, which t- may take me a few minutes because we have very distinguished and qualified people who can come. And some of them I've just met. Some of them I've known my entire life. But the first one immediately to my left is Minister Faust. Now, Minister is a novelist, uh, print radio, television journalist, blogger, a sketch comedy writer, video game writer, playwright, and poet. Uh, and he also taught high school. Like, uh, so you're a recovering high school teacher like me. Uh, step seven of the process. Uh, junior, and you also junior high uh, English literature and comp- composition for a decade. Uh, the critically acclaimed author of Alchemists of Kush. Kush, is it Kush or Kush? Kush. Kush. Uh, and the Kindred Award-winning and Philip Dick uh, runner-up, Shrinking the Heroes, Minister Faust first achieved literary accolades for his debut novel, The Coyote Kings of the Space Age Bachelor Pad, which was shortlisted for the Locust Best First Novel, Philip K. Dick and Compton Crook Award. So welcome to Minister. 
Uh, we'll do a big applause at the end if that's possible. Immediately to his left is Dave Robertson. Now Dave is a, is an award-winning writer, uh, and I know that because I, I'm allowed to call him Dave. So there you go. So you went from David to Dave. So there you go. <laughs> now you feel like the country knows you. So there you go. Uh, your, his books include When We Were Alone, uh, which was the winner of the Governor General's Literary Award, and uh, Will I See, which is an amazing graphic novel and a, and a winner of the Manuela uh, Diaz Book Design and Illustration Award. Of course, the graphic novels Betty, uh, the Helen Betty Osborne story, and the uh, young adult novel Strangers, and the most recent one uh, just released Monsters. Uh, David educates as well as entertains through his writings about Indigenous peoples in Canada, reflecting their cultures, histories, or our cultures, our histories, communities, as well as illuminating many contemporary issues, and you're a member of Norway House Cree Nation. Okay, and they have a beautiful house out uh, there on the south side of the city, so wonderful. Uh, okay, next up is John Taves. Now, I've known John for a long time. John is a uh, one of the forces at McNally Robinson, uh, one of the only independent bookstores uh, that does both developing writers and supporting writers, as well as public outreach and education, and of course, selling books. Uh, John is a well-known uh, person within our literary community as having organized probably every single event ever. <laughs> uh, John is usually at the center, uh, and also, I don't know if you ever go home because you seem to always be at McNally organizing, supporting writers, uh, celebrating writers. Uh, and you were also granted honorary membership in the League of Canadian Poets in 2015. So congratulations for that. Uh, immediately to uh, the left of John is Sheena. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. No, yes, that's I just right. met you, so I just wanted to make sure. Uh, Sheena uh, holds an honors Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from the University of Toronto when, when it was awarded the uh, Canada, TD Canada Trust Scholarship for Community Leadership and Activism around the issue of homelessness. Uh, her debut novel, The Lost Ones, was a national bestseller and won her a 2018 Kobo Emerging Writer Prize, a Strand Magazine Critics Award, and McAvady Award for Best First Novel. The sequel, It All Falls Down, is now available as, and has been called a stunning, emotional, resonant thriller in its Kirkus starred review. Her first YA novel, Fight Like a Girl, set in her hometown of Toronto, is expected out next year. So, uh, And immediately to the left of Sheena is Deborah Sundela Cruz, and uh, Deborah is an assistant editor at Penguin Canada. She's thrilled to be publishing the Booker-nominated dystopia, The Water Cure by Sophie McIntosh and What Red Was by Rosie Price, a campus novel about sexual violence. She also works on accessible novels and, ex and is excited about Robert Hillman's Tale of Love and Forgiveness, The Bookshop of the Brokenhearted, and Claire Poli's The Authentic Authenticity Project, a charming story about the contents of a solitary notebook which brings together a group of lonely individuals. Welcome to Deborah. And Last but not least, at the very end, uh, is Marilyn Biederman. Now, Marilyn is with Transatlantic Literary Agency, uh, and before that, Marilyn worked at her own literary agency and consultancy practice for seven years, where she helped launch the careers of debut and prize-winning authors. She had previously worked at McClellan and Stewart for 12 years, most recently as vice president, director, rights and contracts. Uh, at McClellan and Stewart, she handled the international rights for many renowned authors, including Leonard Cohen, Alistair MacLeod, and Madeline Ting. Uh, welcome to all of our authors, and I believe we may have another one coming. Is that, is that? Anyways, I apologize uh, if we uh, if we get interrupted, but uh, if if he's able to join us, I will uh, introduce her as well. But please welcome all of our authors to the stage. All right, so let's get right into it. Uh, I uh, I'm going to throw a few questions uh, over. 
Um, to all now that we've we've met all of you, I want to throw a few questions over, and maybe we'll start with you, Minister. Uh, uh, you know, can lit is something difficult to define Canadian literature as a field, as an idea, as a trajectory. Uh, like I said before, it really was a uh, a field dominated by centrist Canadian narratives of the building of the nation and then the expansion of the nation uh, as people began to write on the prairies. And that's where I sort of was exposed to people like Sinclair Ross, for example, and, and uh, this kind of frontier narrative. So there was kind of this building of the nation and then the expansion of the nation, but Canlit is very different now. What is your definition of what Canlit is? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that, you know, when you said centrist, I mean, I think you're talking about the people who call themselves Central Canadians and they're actually Easterners. Because Central Canada is northern Manitoba, if you ever look at a map. So, uh, yeah. I like you already, by the way. We'll be in a cop buddy movie together. So, you know, I, I remember, uh, you know, studying Camelot as a concept in university. And what I got a lot of uh, was, you know, Easterners who would have this imagination of the prairies as a zone of ultimate loneliness. You know, this sort of existential black hole. And there'd be a boy, a blonde boy, and a wolf. You know, that was, that's what it meant. And, um, you know, when I was a kid, you know, going to the public well, Catholic school, like there wasn't anybody in class who ever wanted to take a story that our teachers called a Canadian story because it was always going to be boring and sad. And I'm not saying that there's no place for sad stories. A lot of my stories are sad, but there's never a place for boring stories. And so what I think is great and refreshing is how many people now, the work that they're writing is their own experiences. So that is what Canlit is. It's whatever you as a writer in this country are creating. And instead of trying to impose on it, no, you gotta have this many you know, uh, references to this lake and there's gotta be this many really cornball references to one of the Trudeaus, you know, no. It's just write what you experience, and for most of us in Canada, that means living in the city. And in my case, as a writer, African-Canadian writer specifically, Kenyan-Canadian writer in Edmonton, I write about the African, the huge range of African-Canadians who are there. And so part of the city is called Kush, which is named for an ancient uh, Nile civilization. And so that's a part of Edmonton that is full of people of South Sudanese, Sudanese, Somali, Eritrean, descent and you know and, and others and Ethiopians and, and, and others so that's what I write about and that's to me that's the core of Camlet and everybody else is their own core of Camlet. So Dave there's a uh, there's a novel in the turn of the century you know a sort of pre-confederation or emerging of Canada kind of Catherine Parr trail called Canadian Crusoes and it's basically a story about uh, in the, uh, Two British children meet a have a French worker they go to the forest they get lost for 18 years they build a civilization and having there met a half-breed Indian who shows them the way of how to survive in the bush. And then at the end of the story, the, 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 this half-breed, of course, misnomer, that's, what, that's the name in the, in the book, uh, is then um, just disappears as they build this civilization, rebuilding forests. But what is the role, uh, not just as an indigenous writer, but also as, as someone who represents this, you know, Ken Lit is, likes to think of itself as this fairly new thing. But what is it that you, you imagine Canlit to be? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, I think that story could happen now even, uh, the turn of the century story. I think that stuff's still happening. Like, and, and that kind of, the, but I, I do feel like the, the new uh, push, uh, the momentum that we have in, in particular for indigenous writers 
is pushing a lot of those narratives to the, to the sides. And I think that's important. Um, and more and more Canadians are embracing Indigenous literature um, and, and recognizing the difference between old voice stories and appropriated stories. And so I, I feel like that's something that's happened just in the last, you know, maybe five, ten years. Spe specifically in the last couple of years, it's been this boom of Indigenous literature uh, that are being accepted and read widely in, in Canada. Um, and I feel like for, from my perspective, I see Canada not dissimilar as, as Minister does, um, it's that um, we have a diversity of voice in this country. Um, I mean, this is a, this is a, the country is like this cultural mosaic of all these different uh, cultural backgrounds and ethnicities and um, lived experiences. And, I, and I, I think that that's what it is now. I think it's that writers embracing their voice and telling their truths through the platform that they have through literature. And I think that to me is Ken Lin. I think that's an important movement that has happened in the last um, you know, five last decade since I started writing um, is that that movement is changing the landscape of, of what literature is in this country. And I think it's an important move because people are reading stories of truth and it's changing how uh, it's changing perceptions um, of, in particular for me, uh, Indigenous peoples. It's, um, it's, it's also um, giving Indigenous readers um, an opportunity to see themselves reflected in, in the books that they're reading, which is something that I never had when I was a kid. Um, you know, reading comics uh, when I was a kid, uh, it made me feel terrible about myself uh, because Indigenous peoples in there were always represented so poorly. And now we have this, this wealth of, of literature in all these different categories, like young adult, graphic novels, children's literature, uh, memoir, um, adult fiction, that is giving them truth in, in, in these stories. And, and it's empowering readers, it's educating readers, and I'm, I'm very excited about, especially because of the difficult year that we've had in 2018 in the area of reconciliation, I feel like there's hope in what I've, what I've seen in the arts. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be a small part of that. And one thing, I was thinking about my uncle who says, you know, the stories that we talk about are just the stories that are spoken in the land. Like, and that's just a form of publication. Like we're just imagining the ways in which we interact with with this great archive or what I call the library of North America, which is in the land itself that we published in those places. We just call them on hide and skin and, and uh, uh, beadwork and birch bark and so on. Now, publication though is like, and then sales and marketing is uh, something that you know very well, John. You know, ha you know having, I look at the McNally Robinson uh, bestseller list every week and I constantly see this little taste of what Canlit looks like, because it's like this, uh, you've got some real fixtures there, and you've got one thing that you've had there is like a permanent fixture of Indigenous voices, which I almost think you've have never seen before in my lifetime anyway, except for the past couple years, and then Winnipeg is the center of that, those kind of centers of uh, achievement. But as a, uh, as a person who works within the marketing and images of books, how do you see Canlit moving, and what is the role of maybe also Winnipeg in that, in that larger Canlit presence? Oh, certainly. Uh, I mean, when uh, Dave makes a reference to the like nine or ten years or so, I started in my position around nine years ago. And coming from the music industry, my knowledge of Canadian literature was what was instilled with me in school, like uh, Minister Faust says. The, basically, that image of somebody on the prairies gazing wistfully out and across the land. Whereas now, when I got this job around nine years ago, that's when I first started to discover a lot of the uh, independent presses around Canada, those things that weren't necessarily front and center in the media or front and center in stores, and realized what an incredible breadth of uh, story there was out there and how many people were doing incredibly innovative work. 
So I'd say that one of the most thrilling things about the last nine years or so has been watching those voices become not only grow at the independent level, but also start to be embraced by more mainstream marketing efforts as well to make their way to the major, make their way to the larger presses in Toronto, have those voices be given more of a platform. So I'd say that uh, marketing specifically in, well, I come from an event perspective at our store, and one of the things that's been really helpful in terms of getting people engaged with it has been the number of um, writers that are actually touring now, that the amount of marketing pressure that's behind these people to get these fascinating new voices out there in front of the public and in conversation with uh, people as well. So that's just one portion of what we can offer at the store is providing a platform, but also using those tours, using these new publications as a way to really foreground really fascinating voices and stories. And a lot of that, when you make reference to Winnipeg, I'd say that one of the strongest centers of really innovative and interesting writing is here in Winnipeg. We have so many local presses that have been doing innovative work for so long. Portage and Main Press, who publishes Dave. Uh, Bedside Press, who publishes these incredibly uh, diverse and fascinating graphic novels and anthology collections. Uh, ARP books, who've been publishing innovative literature for so long. So we're starting to see these voices here in Winnipeg recognized on a broader stage. And I think that's just blazing a trail for other voices from other cities and building on the success of um, those established voices and finding the quieter ones that are slowly beginning to be elevated to the mainstream. So, so you're basically saying there's important things happening that aren't in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you're telling us. So uh, that, you know, I often think we give Toronto a hard time, but we kind of have this thing in Winnipeg about Toronto reporters who fly to here for a coffee break, or the prairies in particularly, and then declare us the most racist city in the world, the most violent places. There's this utter paranoia from Toronto reporters about the prairies. I mean, they, were, they published a uh, piece, the 20 most violent places in Canada uh, the other day, and surprise, surprise, it's on the prairies. And so I think that it's important to identify that there's like this kind of sense of, of uh, the set within the arts community in Canada that's in Toronto, but then also within other spaces. And they're happen it's happening in other spaces. Now, Sheena, you're, you're doing really interesting work. One of the things that I was really excited to meet you about today is because when I read your bio, um, I thought there's an interesting uh, intersection here between Canlet being a place that's trying to make home like make a sense of home in, in sometimes places in which there's some uh, sense of isolation or fear or desire like that. There goes to that, that, that staring out in the prairie, that desire, but your work is in homelessness as well. And, and uh, imagining what, how do you make a home in, in areas of homelessness? Now coming from a place, uh, as I said before about Toronto, having this kind of view or gaze on the rest of Canada, what is it that, uh, that you imagine Canlet to be? I think that um, Canlit is an old castle that is kind of ugly and that nobody wants to go in anymore and it's crumbling and that out of the ruins of this ugly old castle, um, there's a meadow that is popping up and in that meadow there are weeds and flowers and beautiful things happening and I just have to say, I thank you guys for coming here I and, and being a part of this. I am a mystery writer, so what I do is not considered to be canlit. Um, it is a, um, very much a, not part of of what the literary literature of this country is, um, I guess, thought to be. And so, 
primarily what, what, what I do and what other mystery writers in Canada do is we, we network amongst ourselves and we have our own communities. So to actually be considered to be part of CanLit or even for me to be in a panel on CanLit is, that's crazy. Um, thriller writers do not, do not get, I, when I got the invitation, I was like, was there a mistake? Did somebody send this to someone else? What? Go to Winnipeg? Okay. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I'm actually not sure of what CanLit is. I'm, I didn't come up through those institutions and, um, yeah, so so for me, I'm still trying to figure out what it is, but I, I think that right now there is a, there's a growth and there's a movement of, the, of things that are um, content and writers that are are more accepted these days, and I, and I think that's really beautiful. And this idea of finding home, um, yeah, I mean, we find home in our writing and in our art and in in our our literature. So absolutely, I I think that um, having this panel and and having, you know, being, being part of it is something really beautiful. One thing that's really like I love about this forum, this Diaspora Dialogues forum, is that uh, this isn't just a writer's festival. I think oftentimes writers get put on the spot and there's a lot of questions being thrown at people in the writing community about how do book gets, books get selected, but writers don't often have a say in that. So, uh, Deborah, uh, now that you've, I mean, you're an assistant editor at one of the major, most major publishing houses in the country, uh, what what is it that you look for in the representations of CanLit? Because you've got to also keep an eye on the market, right? And what is and sometimes when you respond to the market, we we sometimes offer things like minister says of of ideas of diversity and complexity. Sometimes the market's not interested in those; they want the same old. Uh, what is it that you look to to try to provide or or even market or select uh, certain areas, and then therefore recreate CanLit as you go? Um, I think it's a really exciting time to be in publishing because there is so much change and we're seeing that readers in our market are responding and they want different types of books. Um, and our publishing, I'm really proud to work on a team where I think the publishing reflects that. So we publish such a diverse range. We're focused on new forms. Um, we have a new imprint called Strange Light that focus on, focuses on experimental boundary-pushing boundary books. Um, there's an editor on my team whose mandate, or what he wants to do, is publish um, LGBTQ books um, with an intersectional element. Um, so he publishes Vivek Shreya. And that was on the bestseller list. So I think as publishers, we're seeing the change. We're seeing uh, we want to publish books that reflect our audiences. And that means a diverse demographic in Canada. I think. Um, I read somewhere that immigrants make up around 22% of the population in Canada now, and in 2030, it's going to be 30%. So as publishers, we need, I personally want our books to reflect that shift. I think back to about, I don't know, 2010 or so, uh, I had this idea where I would, I wanted some national series on Indigenous writing. And I went to a major publishing house in Toronto, and the first question I got is, uh, there's not enough writers that are marketable. And then the second one, the second response that I got is, uh, we wouldn't make money from that. It would be more like a sort of goodwill project. <laughs> and and so then I took that series idea and I took it to Portage and Maine, which is where Dave uh, publishes. And now uh, we the, arguably the most successful set of books that they, they have an entire imprint that is exclusively Indigenous writers. And they have made in it, like I would say that how triple, quadruple, 
their presence in the market due to just indigenous writing. And, and if you think, look at the Governor General award-winning writing coming, you know, with Dave and with, uh, with high, it's called High Water, but it's really Portage and Main Press. I mean, they're making a, a ton of ton of, uh, of presence within the market and they're making uh, good, good livings for writers. And so Mar Marilyn, uh, you represent these writers that are often facing those kinds of barriers or those images or those ideas in which not just indigenous writers, but also people, perhaps immigrant writers or people from different areas of perspective and ideas that LGBTQ come to mind that are, have been sort of pushed off to the side or that's, the, that's niche writing. How do you per approach as an agent, approach uh, publishers, big and small, to be able to talk about text and what the marketability is, but also the importance of these texts? Well, the interesting thing about the particular present that we're in, the moment that we're in, is that there's a lot of disruption going on. And I want to make specific mention of a book that Book Hug is publishing next week. And you are in the lucky position of having copies out on the book table. I was supposed to hold my copy up, but I forgot it in my purse. It's called Refuse refuse or refuse, depending on how you want to read the title. And it is a very, very useful uh, summary of all the disruptions that are happening in Canlit right now. Um, call it the dumpster fire, call it whatever you want. But some of our best writers are included in that book talking about what's going on in Canlit. And they, they can say it, way better than I can. So as an agent, I am in the position, the very honored, but um, position in which I have to be careful uh, of putting forward these new voices. My worry is that now that the big publishers have discovered, lo and behold, people want to read these stories, that the writers are ready, that the writers are nurtured properly on their own time within their own creative process and aren't just feeding the machine. They have to be taken care of in a, in a, in a way that is comfortable for them, brought along in their creative process um, at, at a pace that is comfortable for them. And when they are ready, yes, you can put them, you can present them in a way to the uh, major publishers and the independent publishers. And there is no question that things are changing. People have, the people at the publishing houses have learned you can make money from these people, but I am very cognizant of protecting them and keeping their creative processes um, pure and true to themselves. Let's finish that way. Okay, great. Maybe we can get a copy of that book to sort of show it off yeah. a little bit if you, if you want, or I don't know where the book table is, or uh, sorry to make you give, give you work there. So, uh, but you know, we, we have an opportunity to hear from our authors following this. Uh, so I'm interviewing Dave uh, for the podcast, uh, and uh, then Sheena uh, will be on after that, and then Minister will be on after that. And so from uh, 1.30 all the way till five, you'll be able to get a chance to hear from authors and they're involving their work but I'm going to throw you all on the spot here, and, and we don't need to go in order this time. It's just kind of a like just sort of throw out an idea there. What is the most exciting thing you've noticed? Uh, because we can talk a, we can talk about controversy, and maybe that's an exciting thing too. Like we've uh, there it is right there. Uh, <laughs> great, uh, and uh, I think that's a great you know segue into what is the most exciting thing that you're noticing about Canlit today. Uh, what is it could be a book, it could be a writer, or it could just be a movement. Like I'm thinking about some of the movements involving. Um, 
while we can talk a lot about the appropriation prize debacle uh, that Ken Litt has uh, brought us, it also came with an incredible remaking of of visions of Indigenous writers. So the, we now have the Indigenous Literary Studies Association, which oversees the Indigenous Emerging Voices Awards, which is over $100,000 of, uh, of funds that to support young Indigenous writers for their first-time texts and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so there, you know, as much as there is controversy, there's also light from the ashes, right? And so uh, what are the, what's the most exciting thing that you've seen or that you're seeing uh, in, in, in uh, Canlit today? And you don't have to go in order, just, uh, I guess Dave's at the first. It's kind of this raised right to my lips, ready to go. <laughs> um, I don't want to waste my breath on people like John Kay, but um, I feel like with the appropriation prize and with other things, I'll give you some examples. Um, whenever something happens where barriers is erected uh, and we feel like there's going to be a setback or I feel like, um, you know, something is, is is going to get into, into the way of all the progress that we're making in, in blowing up Canlit and what that used to be. Um, there's this amazing response from the people who really matter, and that's the readers and the public. Uh, and so whether it was with the appropriation prize and that uh, amazing uh, awards being established, um, that was the response. And it was an incredible positive response. Um, recently, in Alberta, um, the Edmonton Public Schools and then the Alberta Education, the governmental body, um, were banning Indigenous books. Uh, not banning them, but they were weeding them out of the schools and the, and the libraries. And, um, and so, you know, I, I, I had done a lot of media on that and, um, and they had taken the site down, but then Alberta had, uh, had specifically told a teacher in a, in a, in a town in Alberta to uh, stop teaching a, a book, stop teaching an Indigenous book. Um, and the response to that too was uh, out of that potentially um, it really was a negative thing um, but all of a sudden my book that was banned went to top 100 on Amazon um, and so and I had people like messaging me and showing me pictures of them buying my book and so that, that again that response was from the people who really matter and that's the readers and, and so I feel like um, the most exciting thing that I've seen is that response from the public in Canada showing that they are ready for and want um, these diverse voices. And I feel like that is so encouraging as a writer to know that we have that platform, that people want to hear us in that platform. And I remember um, a year and a half ago, I was looking at the bestseller lists in Canada, uh, the top 30 bestsellers in Canada, and 15 of them were Indigenous books, and over 20 were from diverse authors. Um, and I felt like that was like the coolest thing that I'd seen since, since I've become a writer and since I've been published. And so I feel like those are the things that I feel are most exciting is that, um, is that the, the public and the readers uh, are, are ready for and want um, these books in their hands. Yep, and it's, it's books that aren't no longer in the sidelines, they're right front and center. So, and they're books where uh, previously, say Asians are portrayed a certain way. Now you have books like Crazy Rich Asians, which with the movie, it's front and center. It does not conform to stereotypes. It breaks the mold of what has previously been done. It's not a literary book. It's a fun, it's a fun read for everyone, and it's selling like crazy. And I'm, I'm really proud of books like that. Um, and I'm also proud of um, books that respond to what's happening today, south of the border, across the world. Books about women's rights being revoked, um, and I'm seeing a lot of books by young females that 
are talking about a future that's close to our world today. So with dystopian writing, I'm really proud of the books we're publishing in that area. And I think we need books like that to fight what's happening. Um, what I find really interesting is, because um, uh, I'm, I'm published, I write commercial fiction and I'm published mostly out of the US. And um, I, uh, I tried in my third book to set an action piece, a set piece in Seattle. And my American editor got back to me and she was like, do we need to go to Seattle? Can we just kind of keep it to Vancouver um, for now? Because we really are into the Canadian setting. And that is, and yeah, and so. I want to know what that is. <laughs> the, the Canadian setting. <laughs> I want to know, like, what's the vision, like, when she puts that on you, I want to know what that is. Like, I, want, like, I actually want, like, a list. <laughs> Must have. 14 whatevers. <laughs> well, well there, it's, it's, it's like kind of, uh, you know, atmospheric Vancouver kind of, it, like the gritty streets of Vancouver. That's what coffee you Coffee shops. All right. Yes, okay. hipster <laughs> coffee shops. <laughs> that's what, no, but um, I find that, um, and what I'm hearing is that um, internationally there is a, there is a desire to, to know more Canadian stories and to, to actually explore Canadian fiction that is not really that's not what necessarily what you think of Canlit. Um, and that also that commercial fiction, crime fiction set in Canada, it can be internationally sold. And in the mystery community right now, we have, we have a lot of big names that are getting out there and, and actually spreading the word that Canada is a really interesting place to write about. And I want other Canadian writers to know that you, if you are considering commercial fiction, crime fiction, mysteries, anything genre, worldwide, people want these stories, um, and I'm and I'm seeing a growth of that in in my own genre. Yeah, I mean, what excites me is that people are going to tell the stories that they want to tell, and so when you know Sheena said she writes mysteries, you know, but didn't feel like she was included. I'm kind of interpreting, but was included in Camlet or was excluded from it. I think. Well, then the sin's on them because you're writing Canlit. You're writing something that people want to read. And Shh, don't tell anybody that. And then, you know, you're saying, and I'm also thrilled to hear editors say, we want more, not less Canada. When I wrote my first published novel, The Coyote Kings of the Space Age Bachelor Pad, which is set in Edmonton, a lot of my friends said, no, you're going to have to set this in Chicago or something like that because Americans will never go for this because I was going to be sending it to American publishers. And um, the only notes that I got back from American reviewers were that they loved the exotic setting. <laughs> so, and the thing is like, you know, Edmonton. Yeah, and like, you're, you're all laughing, you know, which is good because I said it for a laugh. But if you think about it, why should that be funny? If they haven't been there, by definition, it's exotic. Now, I, uh, I have family in Winnipeg going back, you know, to the 1940s, and I adored this city. It's a gorgeous city. Every time I come here, I think, why is this not in more movies? <laughs> It's spectacular looking, and it's an amazing place. And you talking about the way that, you know, Eastern journalists would say they're the deadliest place in, in the country, you know. It's like, I, I've never felt so safer than when I come to Winnipeg. I love this place. So what I'm saying is you already have an amazing city. We have amazing provinces and territories in the country. So the candidate is whatever we want it to be. I also refuse to exceed the ground to, like, so... There's fiction or literature, and then there's genre fiction, which of course is logically absurd. Everything that you write in fits into one type of genre, and you can't you know, smash or smoothie all of the other genres into one thing called genre fiction. The so-called literary fiction, even the name is silly. 
all literature, you know, I mean, everything you write is literature, by definition. So literary literature is what they're saying. It's a way of saying that their work is somehow better than the rest of our work. No, what you like, that's totally up to you. What excites me right now is that in Edmonton, which is a thriving literary community, we have so many writers in so many genres doing so many amazing things. People like Wayne Arthurson, who writes the Leo DeRoche mystery series, uh, which you know I think is spectacular stuff. He's the same writer who will then write, I think it's Camp 13, about um, you know World War II and Nazi prison guards. So it's that you get to, you get to steer the ship. That's what I like to see. And just the fact that this panel having this composition for much of my life, I would never have seen a panel that looked like this, and I wouldn't have been invited to be on the panel anyway. And what, what, would have, what would, is really, I think, the next step is, yes, this is for diaspora dialogues. I just want to see more panels, and I'm, I mean, I'm grateful for this, so I don't want anyone to misinterpret what I'm saying, but I would like to see that this kind of composition just becomes typical without it requiring to be put together by diaspora dialogues. And just to add to that, um um, in Vancouver, the Writers' Festival had uh, Sherry Dimaline come and uh, curate Indigenous uh, events in the Vancouver Writers' Festival. We had like Monique Gray Smith and Kate Vermette and myself and Cherie and and um, and Ina Robinson and um, and those were the best attended events of the entire festival. And that was very cool to see that they were they were creating these panels of Indigenous <coughs> writers specifically to promote the works and that diversity of voice and own voice stories and, and readers are coming by the droves to come and, and, and see it happening. And that, that was it, along those lines and I think it was really encouraging to see. I don't think you, would, you wouldn't have seen that happen like even five years ago. So it's very cool. May I put a little bit of an international perspective on what Dave just said? We have something coming up in Canada on the world stage that's going to be very, very exciting. Canada will be the featured country at the Frankfurt Book Fair in 2020. Now, what does that mean? The Frankfurt Book Fair is where all the um, publishing professionals from all over the world get together once a year to sell rights to the books. It's the, the, the scale of this thing is almost unimaginable. And forgive me for giving a Toronto reference, but what's your biggest convention center here? Like, Take the biggest convention center you've, you can imagine and multiply it by 12, okay? It's, it's, in, it's enormous in its scope. It's a very, very large uh, gathering of people. There's like 80,000 publishers. It's insane. But anyway, so uh, Canada, because of the prominence of our literature internationally, uh, we've been lobbying for years, and it is something the um, government has to pay for. They make a great deal of money at Frankfurt by having these featured countries. Of course, a prior government was not so keen on it. Now we have a government that is, that is supporting it in a very, very big way. So there is a big push to... Um, to feature Indigenous writers at the Frankfurt Book Fair in 2020. So we're in a very, very interesting moment where somebody like me has the opportunity to help put these voices forward. So it's tremendously cool, really, really exciting. We've got a lot to look forward to. I'd say one of the, uh, from a marketing perspective, one of the most thrilling things about the uh, switch in the focus on literature has been the move away from 
prescriptive marketing where uh, every year you have one book from an indigenous author and it's the eat your vegetables book where you learn about this particular area uh, where and which was always just so patently absurd that there was one book from each area that would represent that outlook and you would read that you would learn and then you'd move along and now there's just the realization or at least the realization on the marketing side that that's completely ridiculous and that w- you're just focusing on the voice, you're focusing on the stories, you're focusing on the talent behind it, rather than just putting each book into an individual box and marketing it that way based on background, which is always the most ridiculous way to market books. Well, it also meant that uh, it was uh, only one person from that given identity was allowed Absolutely. to come to the front. It kind of reminds me of American Hollywood back when only one African-American could be a star at a time. You know, So it's a way of actually blocking more people from getting their time in the sun. I almost fought once with David Cheriandi because I'm like, he's also Trinidadian and more famous and arguably better looking than me. And I was like, why did you have to get there first? Um, so yeah, <laughs> that idea of there's just one kind of like, is can there only be one Trinidadian writer? Can there only be one Winnipeg writer? You know, what, um, yeah. Like Highlander. Yeah. <laughs> Writers fighting to the death. But I mean, there... I think about when I was doing my graduate work uh, at in the United States or really in Canada, uh, there was usually that one voice dropped into a can-lit class and we all just march along the, the uh, uh, same story that you told earlier. Uh, for me, I just call it the painted door story over and over and over again. And then you get this little blip and then you go back to that story over and over again. And then you get exam- you know, tested upon that one kind of voice. Um, there are areas in Canlit that we've never seen before, and mystery writing is one, but also dystopic fiction is another. Uh, and imagining sort of a, a world in which even outer space is Canlit uh, is interesting because it's a breakaway from the uh, historical trope or metaphor image, this fixed idea that. Canlit is all about land, either conquering or taking or occupying or ultimately extracting things from the land. What is it that you dream Canlit can be? Like, what is it that you can imagine Canlit will be in the future? Uh, as we hear, as we see more, as we expand more, as we dream about it, uh, what writers do you see? I think about one uh, example. Uh, I work with a bunch of kids in inner city Winnipeg here, and I do a lot of work with the, the TRC Calls to Action. And uh, they read the TRC Calls to Action, the Truth Reconciliation Commission Calls to Action, and they went, man, are these ever boring? And so, and they're supposed to be, these are not the future, they're so exciting, they're like, they're boring. And so what they did is they rewrote them all in kids speak, and then told stories around each one, and now they have a book deal. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and what is it that I imagine Canlet to be? I imagine that exact scene. Uh, you know, young people re-envisioning the, that that is boring, and then you know finding a way in which people are interested in it. What is it that you see Canlit becoming? I just want to throw in so Maria Dunn. Uh, some of you, I hope somebody here knows Maria Dunn. Maria Dunn is um, is a singer songwriter and uh, from Edmonton. She wrote an album, created an album called Piece by Piece. And it is all about the women of various backgrounds, a lot of Eastern Europeans and people from East Asia and others who came to work at the GWG Jeans Factory, which was in town. So it was the project was paid for to make this album by uh, labor groups. And what she produced was one of the most exciting, uh, because she had to research this. She should talk to all these women who were still alive 
So they were unionists, and they, so she documented, you know, feminist history, labor history, the history of the prairies. I mean, it was amazing. So I think people look like really diving deep into where they actually live and addressing these issues. If you look at something like CBC's Intelligence, which took these major issues happening in Canada, the drug trade, uh, selling off water. Yes, it's true, I'm naming things that aren't books, but the reason I'm citing those is because they found ways to tell very powerful Canadian stories that deserve to be told. You mentioned science fiction, and uh, you know I'm a science fiction writer, and my work combines you know the river, ancient, the, the, the Nile, with the North Saskatchewan River that flows through Edmonton. So, there, and, and then also space operas in the future. So I just want to see people tell whatever stories they want and not shy away from telling their actual Canadian experience. So don't hide it. You know, I mean, just one more movie reference, my big fat Greek wedding. I mean, my understanding is that's originally a play that began in Winnipeg, okay? So I went to see the film and it just opens up and there's a Chiron that says, Chicago. And they're like, there's no Chicago photography in the film, there's no <laughs> Chicago settings. They just believe, no, we can't possibly say this is Winnipeg. Like, why can't you? So just stop hiding like there's something wrong with you. Just show who you are because somebody wants to meet you. So true. Um, there's a book I talked about yesterday um, by Strangelight. Um, it's by Anshuman Idam Sethi, and it's a fatness manifesto. And um, you won't know who he is, most likely, but Anshuman, um, he was, um, he's South Asian. He was born in Kuwait. He grew up in Newfoundland. He has called himself short, queer, fat, Muslim, and he's writing a manifesto about the fat body in the future. So that is a book I see as Canlit, um, I see dystopian. Um, we have a book on shortlisted for the Giller by Taya Lim. Um, she's half Singaporean and she's writing about time travel, but it's it's really about displacement and the lack of status when you show up at a country with nothing. And I think issues like that are so important and writers are catching on. I mean, writers have always known and audiences are catching on and responding to that. Before, uh, I, I want to throw this at, uh, I mean, Marilyn as well, and, but is the, I mean, they, they, there's been the pronouncement of the end of the book, but my experience is it's maybe the end of the major publishers of the book, or it's the diffusing of the industry, in that I, I think we, what we see in Winnipeg is the rise of small publishers in ways that we are unprecedented. Um, so is, is there an end to the book? Is there, or you see an expansion to the book? No, you're going to get an emphatic no. There is no end to the book. The book is thriving, in fact. And if you're going to talk, if you want to talk about print book sales and ebook sales, ebook sales have flattened out. They're kind of plateauing now. And the, um, the print book is stronger than ever. So I find that very encouraging. I know that a lot of millennials are reading print books, but one of the areas that has become very, very strong is audio. So we have a huge multiple um, um, increase in the number of audio books that are being sold. Why? Millennials are listening on their phones. So there's money to be made there. And I know that Audible has just, I'll go on, I'll talk about this for a sec. Um, Audible has just uh, hired a buyer in New Jersey for Canada only. So they've really invested in their Canadian program. They are as uh, good corporate citizens starting, they're going to uh, build 
uh, audio studios at Ryerson University in Toronto and start as part of the theater program there, voice instruction specifically for audiobooks. So that's a really interesting development. And no, I think that the market is very healthy. And what I see happening between the uh, larger publishers and the smaller publishers is that there is no doubt the ability to place a book with the larger publishers is more difficult than ever. Those lists are contracting. And as a result, what's happening is that the independent publishers are getting to publish more and more interesting books that formerly might have been gobbled up by the majors. So you're seeing a proliferation of excellent Canadian independent publishers who have wonderful, wonderful books on their publishing programs. So future of CanLit, dreaming, possibilities, visions, any others on there, out there? I just say that uh, the new generation of writers, because I'm officially old enough now that I think I can reference the younger generation, is uh, just paying no heed to genre, really. And I think that's the most exciting thing about recent developments in writing. There's just this wonderful cross-pollination between uh, younger writers who are coming up who will put out a collection of poetry, then put out a collection of essays, then put out some kind of sprawling science fiction book. And that all seems like a natural path rather than just playing around in various areas. Each area complements the other. So I think the most exciting thing about the next few years will be seeing that generation come up and just publish these incredible cross-genre cross works that I think will be unlike a lot of books that we've seen thus far. There's a, uh, we'll get a couple more here, but I just want to throw it to the audience that you'll have an opportunity if you have some ideas or you want to ask a question to any one of the panelists or all the panelists, uh, you're going to have a chance in about three minutes. So, uh, so get your question out there. I could talk, I could ask questions all day, but uh, is there any more visions of uh, CanLit or future visions, ideas? I just think that um, if, you're, if you're stuck to the idea of what CanLit is or was, um, you're going to get left behind because um, what it's becoming is, I think, what we've all been talking about here. It's, it's, uh, it's this thing where it can be anything. It can be um, graphical. It can be um, dystopic fiction. It can be, um, you know, we have like indigenous supernatural murder mysteries. We have, I mean, and that's all what Canada is becoming. Uh, and, it, and it's, I think that, um, and, and to your point too, um, a couple of years ago, my publisher was uh, preparing for our, to push to ebooks, and they were, they were frantically trying to get everything ready for ebooks. And then, um, you know, the uh, my royalty was like point whatever percent ebook in all physical book sales. I don't think that's ever going to go away either. So as much as the physical books are always going to stay the same, what they are is going to be completely different. And I feel like the momentum that we have now is just going to continue to push. And um, and, I, and that's very exciting for me to see that happening. And I think it's we're going to be seeing um, not the death of the novel, but this incredible rebirth of it um, and what it is and what it could be. I just want to say one last thing about ebooks. I think that um, if ebook sales have plateaued, we shouldn't regard that as a good thing. A book is a book. If you read the book aloud, it's still a book. If the book is in a scroll, it's still a book. There are literally billions of people who are currently using flip phones who will very soon have smartphones. And that is going to open up billions of potential sales for ebooks. What we're missing is cross-pollinating technologies. Imagine a mystery book 
that you would be that would work like Pokemon Go. It would be geocached, so you walk around the city and you get a chapter or a sequence that also unlocks, you know, oh, this scene takes place in this restaurant, and then this triggers this song to play. I mean, what we could do with an electronically amplified book, it just depends on our imagination. And I think it could be extraordinarily exciting, and we should pioneer this right here in this country. That's I the futuristic so. writer there talking. Although <laughs> <laughs> awesome. oh, I think about how many now people will be sitting at stoplights. That's what makes me think. <laughs> That's what I think. I just be like, come on, I'm reading my book. Come on, leave me alone. May I just add an analogy to what Minister said, which was great. Um, where the stage that uh, eBooks are at now has been compared to where television was at the very beginning, which was a static radio show that you could see. I think it's a very useful comparison. Uh, so that's a, a great opening uh, to, uh, you know, if anyone has a question or wants to make a comment, or if you want to direct something specific to an author and ask them about their work or uh, anything involving, we have, like I said, an amazing panel with experiences of publication, selling, uh, representing, and then also authors and then a boring academic over here. And so uh, if you have a question or a comment, throw that out there. But if I don't see one, then I'm going to throw it over here. Uh, I want to ask this question. Uh, you know, Canlet is, is this kind of never-ending, growing thing, but it's also very time-consuming. And uh, doing your work as a writer or as a representer, as a publisher, as, as a marketer, as a, a person who works in all different facets. What is it that you do to draw, uh, to base, to ground yourself uh, in the world? Like, how do you stay connected to Canada in your work? Because if you could uh, travel, think, uh, you could keep moving, and, and um, how is it that you stay grounded within your specific communities, but then also talk about the broader story of Canada at large? What I'm really looking for here is, is there any locality, uh, like that you really focus on specifically in your work and then bring it to a, a, a sort of a larger platform? I like to represent people from all across the country. It's one of the great pleasures of this work is that I have two clients here in Winnipeg. I have clients on the West Coast, on the East Coast, and visiting with them, reading their materials is a way to immerse myself in their realities from all across this country on many, many different topics. And it's just a really exciting place to be. It's awesome. I feel like in my work, it's just, um, you know, sharing, I guess, what, what you would call the indigenous experience, which is, you know, vast and diverse. Um, and, and so I, I focused on it through my books. Um, and in doing that, um, it is stories that originate from, you know, Manitoba, but it's also an education for me because I write stories about Indigenous peoples in Newfoundland, in British Columbia, and so I've, I've learned as much, um, as much as I try to educate as well. So I feel like it's been uh, an enriching experience for me as much as I hope it is for the reader through my work. Um, sure, yeah. So. Uh, I actually started writing novels because um, I, I used to be an actor and then a screenwriter, and I found that there was no representation um, in the screen arts at that time, and it was very difficult for me as a you know woman of color to 
get anything made, get people to consider me. It was, it was pretty difficult. And so when I started writing, I wanted to write diversely. I wanted representation. I wanted that. And that's an idea that I stay true to, um, play to my imagination, write stories that appeal to me, but also make sure that everybody that I see is somehow part of my world and my stories. Because I, um, maybe one day I'll write a very intimate story about what it's like being a brown woman growing up in Scarborough or something, but that's not what I work on right now. What I work on are, are, are mysteries and, and things that, um, you know, are, are in that genre. So I, maybe I shouldn't say genre minister, sorry. Um, but, but, but that, that's what I do. And I try to stay true to this idea of, I see Canada as a really interesting, dynamic, complicated place. And what keeps me grounded is this idea of, of wanting to, to, to show that Canada, my Canada. Like I, the reason I totally uh, trickery in the question in that I, I find this is a Winnipeg thing. I find that within Winnipeg writers, and maybe I would now imagine Edmonton writers as well, but also maybe this kind of idea of the local but the real, and that my job is to convey the real. And because so much of what has been imposed upon us is representation and imagination and really colonization of our of our thoughts and minds of what Canada is. I find in Winnipeg writers, the most exciting thing is, is, is that you can take certain books like Kate Vermette's North End uh, Love Songs, you can take April Raintree, uh, you could take, uh, you know, how many others, Miriam Taves, and you can actually map those books out on places. And you can actually walk the streets and you can have the Pokemon Go experience literally by the book because you're like, oh, now I'm on Jarvis Street and this was talked about it, and then I can read the story about your, like, I love that. Like, that's my favorite thing about it. But we're just gonna throw it out here and get maybe a comment and then we can keep rolling on. Go ahead, just say your name if you can, just your first name. Hi, it's Rosemary. I'm interested in your definition of who is the, where is the mothership of Canlet? Is it educators that define it? Is it Revenue Canada? Do you, do you get a grant if you are, do you get a tax break if you're a Canlet writer, if you're a Canlet publisher, if you're a Canlet, bookseller, do, is there, and so why do we need to blow it up, but who is holding this container called, this is Canlit, and we are defining it as that? Read this book. That'll answer you in, in, in one way, that's an answer to your question. I love that question, by the way. Like, I love that idea. Is there other ideas out there? I mean, we've seen things bubble up over time. Minister, you're gonna well, uh, yeah, well, since you, know, you gave the reference to the mothership, I'll just say um, many of us in this room grew up with the original Spider-Man cartoon, and you remember uh, Infinata, who controlled Dementia 5, which was all illusions? Well, that's what, that's what the, this, anybody having hegemony over Canlit is trying to do. Nobody gets to control it. It's what we're doing. The only thing we have to do is stop succumbing to someone else's definition. If you're in Canada and you're writing it, it's Canlet. If you're a Canadian who went somewhere else and you're writing it, it's Canlet. End of story. I love that. That reference was, that reference rocked. Like, literally, you just legitimated my entire childhood. The Spider-Man song in my head just going on. I know exactly what you're talking about. Action is my reward. I have the DVDs in my house for the entire 67 series. <laughs> Go ahead, over here. Just say your first name if you can. Uh, the front microphone? All right. Is it working now? Yeah, yeah. yeah. okay. Uh, my name is Bradley, and um, I would be classified as an emerging writer, air quotes. 
So um, as an immigrant, I've been here for 30 years. Uh, today is fascinating because I had no idea what CanLit was. And so that's why I started up like blowing it up. I'm like, what are we blowing up? Like, <laughs> and coming here as an immigrant and being part of the city as a book lover and different things, no one ever quantified what CanLit was for me. I mean, I kind of had this idea of Margaret Atwood and you know Miriam Tays wrestling it out. And that was really it. So it's been fascinating to hear over the last couple of days about what's happening. And I mean, I'm a book lover and a lover of books. But one of the things that also sort of frustrates me is that we have a system that is perfectly designed to get the results it's getting, both intended and unintended in the literature industry. So on one hand, we have um, publishing houses, large and small, making it harder and harder to publish and make it harder and harder for writers to get their stuff out. And when we do get it out, we have to invest so much more into getting it to that stage. But then they're also on the other side kind of you know, whining about the fact that they don't have these diverse voices and how do we get more diverse voices? So how do we get these two pieces working together more? And it doesn't just happen in publishing, it's happening in the corporate sector, nonprofit, where you have organizations and entities on one hand saying they want something and yet their system is perfectly designed not to let them get that thing and prohibit them from getting that thing. So how do we, in this blowing up context, contribute to that disruption of saying, okay, how do we get these more diverse voices out? How do we make it easier for emerging writers like myself to connect to processes to get our voices and our stories out? DIY. Seriously. One of the big problems we have as writers is that we, I think we take the intellectual high, we, we think that we're like the, um, the intellectual moral center of the art world. If you are a photographer, you just take photographs. If you make sculptures, you just make them. Every other art form, you just make them. But in the writing world, there seems to be an attitude that unless a corporation says it's a book, it's not a book, it's a vanity project. You know, my friend Craig um, DeLuie, who's a writer from uh, Calgary, one of the many genres he writes in was a genre I didn't know existed. It's submarine war stories. He sold 45,000 books. Now, to put this into perspective, in Canada, there is no official body that determines what a bestseller is. None. It's basically whatever a publisher can get away with claiming. But it's maybe around four or 5,000 books. That's it, okay? That would be considered a disaster as an album. So if he can sell 45,000 books using, you know, making stories that people love and using good marketing techniques, why shouldn't any writer do that? Most so-called literary writers would dream of selling 10,000 books or even 5,000, which as I said, is a bestseller. Many books are selling two, 300 copies. So, you know, learn from indie artists. I, I mean, I, I don't know how um, CanLit institutions work really, uh, but I, I did know that Canada didn't seem to be receptive of me as an actor or screenwriter. And so when I wrote my novel, what I did is I went to pitch in New York. I went to Thriller Fest. Um, there's a pitching thing. And I just bypassed Canada completely. That's how I got published. So that's probably, you know, maybe things are changing right now. I've never, you know, I've never pitched in Canada. I've never had to. Um, but but yeah, I mean, it, it it is tough to be an emerging writer and trying to figure out those things out. So... Thank you for asking your question. I'm sorry I don't have a better answer than, for you than, than go to New York. <laughs> but if I, you know, I'll let you know after if I think of something. Plus, take, I mean, take every opportunity that it presents itself, right? I mean, I mean uh, like you were talking about book sales, 
if you, uh, someone said to me, and, and Dave, you and I have talked about this many times, uh, it, if you took the top bestseller books in Canada and you used the term book in a looser sense than uh, the Globe and Mail uses it, the top 10 books every single week, comic books. Every single time. It would be, comic books would be the number one through 10, and then also 11 through 20, and then 21 through 30, like just comic books. That's what, like, because that's what people buy en masse and, and what they do. And that's why they had this, uh, you know, the, the criteria of books is so finite and controlled because that would just not be something that the literary community would, would appreciate. Uh, so, but take every opportunity that you can because it seems to me that comic books are also something that are short-term fixed. It's a different idea than literary. Uh, and it's like, uh, I mean, then you got to call it graphic novels to have it respected in the in literary world, right? And so I mean, take every opportunity that you can. The best uh, opportunities I've ever had to publish, and I've only published uh, small sections of, of anthologies and comic books, is, is like elevator conversations at conferences or comic cons, or uh, that's when I've had my most success, or just walking by a table, meeting somebody who's looking for something at some time, or just throwing, having your pitches always ready. And always slug lines, right? That's always quick slug lines, ready to go. Uh, and then also be ready to deliver on that if they want the email that night. You know? mm -hmm. So, uh, go ahead over there. Just uh, state your first name if you can. Hi, I'm Bob. Um, this may take a bit of a preamble. Um, I, I'd be interested in your thoughts if any of you have read the recent essay in The Walrus by Andre Forget uh, about, uh, uh, I guess he would call it the dearth of big social novels in Canada. And just for the benefit of people who haven't read it, um, Forget's an editor of the Puritan Literary Magazine, I believe, based in Toronto. And his premise, he starts with a discussion of Marlon James's uh, uh, big, thick novel, uh, A History in Seven Killings? I yes. Think the number of killings. Um, uh, and, and in that, James looks at like the whole uh, Jamaican society, from like the prime minister to the street gangs to everybody in between, tells this big story of global geopolitics and, and drug running and, and everything else. Uh, and, and what Forge says is, Canadian, Canadian literature traditionally has not done that. Uh, many other literatures do. Um, uh, and if you think of, go back to Margaret Atwood's uh, survival thesis about Canadian literature, we're very good at books that depict the downtrodden, but not the downtrodders. Um, and so that was kind of where, he, where he's coming from. We don't have those kind of big novels that, that show or attempt to capture the whole of society. So I wonder, first, if anybody's read it, or if, you're, or if just if my canned explanation is good enough, what do you think of that? Is that true, and why? And is there a market for that? I guess that's three questions, sorry. I wonder if he reads crime fiction, because um, there are some excellent crime writers who are tackling this um, right now. Um, someone who comes to mind at the moment is Sam Weeb, who is a wonderful writer out of Vancouver, um, does the, you know, downtown east side but also does high society as well so um yeah maybe he should read more <laughs> <laughs> boom you gotta drop the mic you do <laughs> but i mean it i mean that, i'm thinking about those big huge goliath novels uh i'm thinking shogun for some reason popping in my head remember that i remember seeing that on my dad's shelf and going who would ever read that and there was my dad reading it you know uh but these kind of large epics, cross-societal, cross-perspective, like I think that that's, that's non-fiction. I mean, how many non-fiction, which of course, as Minister reminds us there, is fully fiction, 
Uh, but you know, these nonfiction packaged uh, stories which kind of tell the, the history of Trudeau from blah, blah, blah to blah, blah, blah. I remember reading this book about the, the entire chapter about what color Trudeau's ties were as he traveled across Canada. And I thought like, wow, like that's interesting. That I mean, that's interesting somebody would find that interesting. It wasn't interesting but as an item, but it was more interesting than people thought of it. But like nonfiction seems to be an answer to that, but you're talking about fiction really. You're talking about a fictional representation of a large cross society, big issue. And it seems like, I think you're also talking, you're, you're, you're alluding to a blur between fiction and nonfiction, maybe in terms of some crime. Anyone else imagine any of those kind of large scale stories? I just think it's the wrong question. I think that that, that I know that my brilliant, the brilliant young people whom I follow on Twitter widely disclaimed that article. And of course, I wish I could remember their brilliant arguments, but I can't. But Gwen Benaway, Alicia Elliott, there are many, many people who are looking, who just destroyed that uh, gentleman's, the, the argument in that, in that article. And it's the wrong question. We, as, as Minister said, we are the literature that we are. And um, I think his point is completely irrelevant. You know, Wayne Arkinson's third book, uh, and I wish I could remember the title, but it deals with conflict diamonds in Canada because we have a, a thriving diamond industry up north. And so he has, you know, from the elites to uh, people literally on the street. So that does exist. And, you know, I agree with Sheena, like, uh, you know, he should read more. And Chris Haddock, you know, again, it's not, it's not, it's, I mean, they begin as scripts. So it's still literature. We study Shakespeare's literature. Uh, Chris Haddock. Uh, the work on Da Vinci's City Hall and intelligence was exactly what you're discussing, and it was brilliant. And the Harper government is what, is what uh, destroyed the serious intelligence. I mean, they, they, they forced the CBC to undermarket the series to the point that it, uh, you know, was thriving and it was, uh, was killed. Uh, let's get a question over here. Just uh, see your first name, please. Um, Vanessa. I'm um, an educator here in Winnipeg. So... This scene is kind of new to me. Um, I guess I have a bit more of a personal question. I know we've been talking about Camlet in general, but I was wondering um, how you started off as authors, what your creative process looked like, and um, how you found your voice as an author. And also, I guess, a publisher, and yes. uh, although John, you're a poet as well, and, and uh, as an agent as well. So yeah, how did you get started? Quick middle, versions, please. the middle part of that process? Was your process, creative. yeah. Oh, um, like when I started writing, or how I just got started professionally writing? Uh, oh, well, I started writing when I was eight years old. I wrote this little poetry book um, called The Bestest Poems I've Ever Saw. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> but I remember uh, after I wrote that book, I ran home to my mom and I said, Mom, I want to be a writer. Because I just loved the, I loved the act of creating something from nothing and, 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 and instilling passion into that creative process. And I still do that. It's just that I don't write about milkshakes anymore. I write about other things. Um, but my process for me is what the stories that I choose to tell are the ones that I am passionate for, but also that I feel like there's a gap for. Uh, because I write specifically my books for education. Um, and so I look at what's in the school systems now, what is required, and what can I do in terms of uh, writing books to provide teachers with better resources um, to uh, you know teach kids things that I missed when I was growing up. Uh, and so that's kind of... My creative process in terms of writing is kind of boring, but uh, in terms of how I choose the stories that I tell, those, that's kind of how I go about um, choosing those stories. And then always, always for me, it's from a First Nations 
uh, perspective, and it probably always will be. Uh, I think for me, what I'm trying to do now is move away from telling stories of tragedy and, 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 and difficulties in history, uh, which is important, but uh, I think we see a shift now where we're starting to tell stories of, of, of re resiliency and, and, um, and um, the beauty in our cultures and our uh, different cultures and, um, and, and trying, to, trying to talk about more of those positive aspects as much as we still need those historical lessons as well. And so I feel like there's a shift happening in that direction in indigenous literature, which I feel is, is something that is, I also like uh, have to see happening. Okay, I apologize, we gotta go quick because we are wrapping up here, but a process and any last thoughts on CanLit, but also uh, some of your uh, uh, you know, experiences of where your work, your work is going to. So anyone else? Um, I okay. Uh, this was uh, to the question of um, of how, how we got started. Um, I was in screenwriting. I was a researcher for a television series and um, trying to be a screenwriter. And I just got really tired of people telling me no, telling me to pay my dues. Um, and then I had an idea for a novel, and I quit my job in Toronto, moved to Vancouver with no job, and uh, and I wrote a novel. And I learned how to write by doing it. And that's I've never taken a writing class in my life. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, I learn by doing, and so I just, I keep writing, and that's really what my process is. Um, when I grew up, I went through the Catholic school system here and found that uh, a lot of the books that we were being taught or, um, given as students were very limiting and not particularly exciting. So I was lucky enough myself to grow up in a house full of books. My father was an enormous reader. And so one of the things I found myself always doing was looking for that story that was nothing like the stories that I'd read before, that was completely outside of my own experience with the books that we were being uh, dictated in school. And so what, we, what I've tried to do and what we've tried to do at McNally Robinson specifically is when we do choose books to highlight, we try not to actually pull books that are coming specifically from media releases or prescribed books from uh, major publishers. We try to ensure that we create a bit of a climate of trust and that within that climate we're looking to elevate the books that we're personally passionate about and that we find exciting and looking for ways to help books find readers because ultimately, and this dates back to my geekiness as a kid, making mixtapes for people, there is nothing more thrilling than matching up the right book with the right reader and seeing that moment of discovery when they open up and that enthusiasm that grows once they've discovered something that they love. So I think that's one of the most exciting things about being in the position that I'm in, at least. I'm going to call you the mixtape maker from now on. <laughs> Every time in an event, that's getting in your bio. Uh, anyone else? Anyone else? Deborah? Uh, I could talk about my origins in Winnipeg. I spent uh, a couple of very, very fine years here, I say 70 pounds ago, and almost as many years as a dancer in contemporary dancers when Rachel Brown was around. So from that, I went, uh, I decided, well, had an injury, went back to school, and took a degree in English at University of Toronto, and the light bulb turned on. I love this. I love to read books and did the Banff Publishing Workshop, which has now morphed into the SFU Publishing Program in Vancouver. Um, got my first job in publishing, and I'm a lifer. I'm in it for life. So, I mean, I think the question, you want to be a writer, I'm assuming? Or you're, you already are a writer? No, I'm not a writer yet. Okay. Well, I mean, if you're right, you're a writer. So... Um, I do a podcast called MF Galaxy, get everywhere for free, and it's primarily, it's writers on the craft and the business of writing. So you won't hear writers talking with their stories, they'll talk about how they write and how they make money. 
And if we don't talk as writers about how to make money, then we're fooling a generation of people who might want to go into it. There's nothing romantic about being, you know, impoverished. You need to, everyone needs to learn and trade stories. In fact, you know, Sheena, you mentioned you learn by doing. I mean, that is a great example. You do it, you learn about marketing, you learn all these other things. If you're an actor, you're so dependent on other people telling you what role you can or you can't have. So one of the key lessons from so many writers that I interview is own your IP, your intellectual property. If you're creating comic books, if you're creating web series comics, doing webisodes, whatever, you're gonna own that intellectual property and then if it ever goes up and becomes some kind of big media project, you'll make them more money so you can make more stories. So always learn, ask writers about how they make money. Always ask writers about how to make money. And I'll say one last thing on that from one of my writer friends, Alex Irvine, he said, when you're getting paid as a writer, always ask for more money. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and agents can help you with that. I like to say, <laughs> I, like to say I put the cop in copyright. Oh. <laughs> Uh, so uh, I, I will end it there on uh, on talking about ways in which we can uh, represent ourselves out there. But uh, now you have an opportunity to not only meet uh, our panelists and say hello to them and shake their hand, but also we have an amazing book table. So the uh, book table is out here. Uh, will fe has featured all of the writers that you see on your on the panel as well as those who have worked with those texts. So our, the authors are going to go and have a, uh, an opportunity to go and sign a few books out there. So check that out as we go. And then in half an hour, or less than half an hour, I suppose now, uh, 25 minutes, uh, you're going to uh, hang out with Dave and I as we talk about some of Dave's work and his career and some of his perspectives. And then following that, I believe it's Sheena. And then after that, it's Minister. And so right on this stage, uh, it'll be very shortly, we're gonna get reorganized and reset, but please uh, join me in giving a huge miigwech thank you to our panelists for spending this uh, wonderful morning with us. We hope you enjoyed this program. Please consider subscribing on your favorite podcast provider. If you're an emerging writer interested in receiving our open calls for submissions or invites to our events, please join our DD newsletter by emailing us at info at diasporadialogues.com with subscribe in the subject line. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>